You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Jacob, thank you so much for being game to to speak with me today for Living Writers. We're taping the program. Let's see, it's February 9th. Let's see. Yeah, 9th of February, 2022. Before we get going with the conversation, Jacob, I'll read your short bio from the back of Abundance. Jacob Guanzan was born in New York and raised in Minnesota. He holds an MFA from Columbia University School of the Arts and lives in New York City. So you're, you'll be reading for the Zelvising Writers series, and are you going to be reading from your novel, Abundance, out with Grey Wolf Press? Yeah, I'll be reading one chapter from Abundance fairly early on in the book, so I don't give out too much, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited to be given that much time. 20 minutes is a lot compared to, you know, these, the ones where you're sharing the stage and you're trying to keep it down to five or 10 just so you can get to the next person and you know, bow out as you know politely as possible. So 20 minutes feels like a, a stint. So I'll be doing a little bit of rehearsal here in the hotel tonight. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like now going out in the world with your book and, and, you know, because you'll be in person and talking to folks here in Ann Arbor. Oh, I, I, I am absolutely ecstatic because this is the first event that is strictly for abundance or, or, featuring me you, you know and and it's just yes. when I got the invitation in the first place I was just my, my jaw fell to the floor because I it you know it came out about a year ago uh, the invitation came about the time that abundance came out before you know even the reviews were out so I was just so humbled and and yeah <laughs> I can't even find the words because it, it's I was just stunned I was just stunned and so to actually be here I've been looking forward to this all year it, it's happening. It's and I mean I'm alone in a hotel room looking around me. Just like, oh, I'm still alone and doing Zoom. So you're not unfamiliar with the Midwest growing up in Minnesota, but is this your first time in Michigan? This is my first time in Michigan as far. Yeah, yeah. So I was I, this is a, a real treat and it feels so familiar. It does feel a lot like Ann Arbor in particular. I got a few hours to just kind of bum around and uh it's nice. It, it, it feels like familiar territory, despite the fact that I've never stepped foot here before. And it's just like, ah, I can breathe a little bit. Grey Wolf is based in uh, Minneapolis as well. So that was, uh, Grey Wolf, my publisher. And, um, and so that was a not really great, you know, home, hometown connection that really made it feel like the ideal fit for, for the book. You know, last year when the book came out in March, all of that was happening during, you know, just just in my bedroom in the, in the closet where I had did, I, I did one with NPR, which was just like, what NPR? Yes. What? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm talking one. to Ari Shapiro. Like, <laughs> and this is awesome. I listen to this guy, you know, <laughs> weekly. This is, I, I, I'm such a huge fan. And, and, um, and so, but then, I, they, you know, they have very strict recording protocol and I had to like huddle into my closet, you know, talk like this into my phone it's just what's going on and um but well you sounded great you said, <laughs> thank you I mean it was worth it let's talk a little bit about abundance did you do your first draft of abundance during your grad school experience with the MFA or when when did it start for you this this particular book this novel you know what? It, it actually didn't start in grad school, and 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 I get that question a lot, and and it surprises even me because I to to start I I was really 
during grad school, I was a complete novice. You know, I'm reading some of the students' work right now that are attending Ann Arbor, and I'm just blown away. And, you know, I was definitely not at that level as a grad grad school student. And um, maybe other people would say differently about why you were chosen there. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I certainly didn't feel like I had the chops. And so I was really just focused on, you know, getting my chops up on, in the, at the short story level and really kind of imagined myself as a short story writer and abundance did start out as a short story um because you know the conceit came first the structural conceit of organizing the book by how much money down to the cent the protagonist has his or her front pocket i mean i didn't have a gender picked out yet i just had the the that structural idea and i was like i want to feel the pressure of how much money a person has pressed down on them and drive a story. And, um, and so that's where I started going and trying to keep this thing in, in, you know, under 20 pages, then it went out to 30. And then a friend came over and saw, you know, my papers, the little single page chapters all over the floor. And he's like, dude, you got a novel here. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> and I just ran with it. And I mean, the first draft came out, it, out of me in about almost six months it was just a whirlwind and but tidying it up and I mean it was that that's where the real work came in but um and and yeah but so I I don't think I had the neither the faith in myself in in grad school and you know that whole imposter syndrome thing be that one of those buzzwords you hear and and I think it's real but it's also really important for students and people in other kind of new environments to really click out of it. It just takes one extra thought to recognize everybody feels like an imposter. Everybody feels self-conscious and incompetent in one way or another. We're all just putting our, you know, this face forward, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And did that, so, so that kind of happened to you when you were in school, you kind of got through got through that you you kind of busted through that in a way or well let's let's go further back then um because you got yourself to the MFA program you believed enough in yourself to apply and go there right and what was the your undergrad work was in sociology though right so so different but really good for empathy (laughs) I'd imagine and and knowing things about the world that um you're not looking away from which completely informs abundance. What was it like for you, like growing up? Did you love reading and playing with words or or did it come to you later? I think, yeah, the, the, I mean, it's it's a really interesting, I, I, I Jesus, I said, I'm about to call my own life path interesting how, <laughs> um, but- I'm sure it is. <laughs> I'm interested. <laughs> Sorry, just let me collect myself here. Okay, but be, but I but I think I had a, a, a let's call it an unconventional path to even higher education because um, I my both of my parents were readers and and uh, you know they they really encouraged grades but when it came down to you know are we uh, the college thing, they wanted me to do it, but that wasn't necessarily on the table for any support, financial support. And as I was just in no position to pay for it. And so I, I thought, you know, to hell with it. I can read the books I want. I can write 
the things I want. And because I loved, I loved writing as a, as, ever since I was a child, but I never, it, writing, especially growing up in, in Minnesota, where it was just, I wasn't tapped into any community there. I was just you know, lonely, anxious kid writing in my dad's basement and didn't even hang out with literary friends. We were just all, just a bunch of punks that, you know, like getting into trouble. And that was enough for me. And, uh, and, I, <laughs> and so, um, and so, you know, uh, four year, the four year degree happened. I, I owe it to a friend's car breaking down getting into Hamlin, um, very briefly, this is so tangential, but um, my, my, my best friend uh, back in high school, she was the one who's, you know, really determined to go to college, and, um, and we we're like, great, good for you, Tate, that's cool, and so she was shopping around, I was just, I was just being a bum, and her car broke down. She had a tour, a campus tour visit kind of thing. And, uh, and her car broke down and she knew I'd be doing nothing. So asked me for a ride. I was like, sure. And, and I'd never stepped foot on a college campus before. And, and I was like, wow, this is very pretty. It all feels very foreign. And, you know, I'm not cut out for this. And this so was I, Hamlin. This was, was Hamlin, you know, okay. a very modest liberal arts college in uh, in St. Paul. Wonderful school, but you know, doesn't have any name recognition outside of Minnesota. Very, very small. And um, and so when it was time to talk to the counselor and hear his pitch, he he's like, oh, I was just going to sit in the waiting room, and he's like, oh, dude, come on up, you know, just hear the spiel and you can you can have a coffee. I was like, cool, free coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's he's also and he kind of asked me too and I was like well yeah I'm a straight A student but you know just I don't got the money so I'm not applying anywhere and uh, and he's like dude we have a free application there's scholarships why aren't you and my, I don't the guidance counselor at my school didn't tell me any of this stuff and I was like what right right I got a I got a scholarship to go there and like you know and thank not a religious person but thank god whatever it is up there that's I did because college turned my life around. I would just, it opened so many opportunities for me. But interestingly enough, that was that while I was going to college, I, a lot of my friends, I, I worked on a landscaping crew during both, you know, the summers and then during college. And that was also part of the reason why I didn't think college was necessary. It's like, oh, I make better money than people coming out of with a degree right, right. now. I got a steady job, I'm, you know, strong. And, you know, what, what do I need that for? And, um, and then I, you know, I graduated and I just, it's, it's fascinating to see the kind of opportunities that this has opened up for me. And I think that's one of the things that I was really able to explore after, you know, I had worked for a while in Spain for I worked all through my first half of my twenties, I was in Spain. And then I went to Colombia, which is just, you know, blah, kind of level levels of wealth and other just totally new territory for me. And, um, and then going and then kind of getting out, graduating from Columbia, I was able to give myself that space to really reflect on the trajectory that I'd had just because of an education and think about the kind of lives that my buddies are kind of stuck in right, right now after years of backbreaking manual labor that I thought was, you know, you know, great at the time. I think I romanticized it quite a bit as well. I won't, I can't deny that. And, but really seeing how, you know, how their lives turned out. Some are okay, doing fine and well and happy. Others, you know, are really hurting. And so it's, it, it's, it, 
I needed some space to reflect on that. And I'm glad I gave a novel, the novel, the form of the novel allowed me that space to really dwell and consider these tremendous discrepancies that opportunities that I don't feel like I necessarily deserve uh, have granted me because uh, some of those guys were just as smart, if not smarter than me, but didn't have, you know, just didn't get good grades in high school kind of thing, right? And that's all that I had because otherwise my old man would give me hell. I didn't have a choice not to get good grades. I wouldn't be alive. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, so this is huge, Jacob. But yeah. thinking about this and knowing that this this story and this um, analysis and reflection is is all part of a, the foundation of the novel, your mm-hmm. novel. But you mentioned you were a kid and you were in a basement writing these stories. So there's something about you as a storyteller and your imagination that's been part of things from the beginning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think for for lack of a better term, lonely kids really, for lonely kids, writing is a it's an incredibly incredibly valuable safe space to just process things and and have things not necessarily go your way, but exert some degree of control, right? And uh, not that I was having those kinds of conscious thoughts or analyses of my work at fifteen, but I think that's what it allowed me. Um, and, and still does to a great extent to to just have this place where you don't get to see this right now and 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 it's mine until I, I say so right and and um, and uh, you know that comes up in in the writing process where friends will ask my partner will ask well, oh what are you working on it's like ah, not, not yet not yet and it's not a defensiveness it's just like it's it's still mine right now it's still tender and 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 um, and I'm not I'm not quite ready. And I think that's that's something that's carried. I hope I haven't relied on it as an emotional crutch for too long. You know, <laughs> there's got to be able to express things with others as well. That's very important too. But uh, especially as a kid, um, that that's what I came to writing for. For and something that it feels like, well, it keeps you. In like in the, I don't know, because it's it's a life, right? It's a way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about processing the world too, but a way of being in the world. Because when you're walking around, Jacob, when you're in the world of one of the stories or in the novelscape, you know, like a, a longer project, is it something that you're kind of walking around with? even when you're, I don't know, going to the grocery store. I don't know. You know what I mean? Where there's like these, or you can come back into it or. I think it it takes me a while to, to transition out of writing mode in, in the evenings um, when I've had a day, I I mean, I have a day job, so I'm, I'm working. So my, my writing work only happens on Saturdays and Sundays. And so I miss, don't have much of a social life as a result, but that's a sacrifice that I've chosen because I wouldn't be able to go on if not. And, um, but when it is time for dinner or to go out for drinks or something like that come Saturday night, it, it, it takes about a good hour to just, oh, okay, this is how you talk again. This is how you move your mouth. And um, this is how you make jokes. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, but then 
and and yeah, it's just always kind of simmering at the surface as I go through the work week and and regular kind of quotidian existence, you know, Monday to Friday. But then, but you know, I I do feel like I'm not I'm not one of those writers who carries around a notepad, you know, and and I think I've missed a lot of I've lost a lot of good ideas and insights, you know, that just pop up during when you least expect them. But I also do value the kind of being present that that I I, I think I might lose otherwise. Uh, that I, and I see a lot of you know really heady types of friends and intellectuals that you know they just recede from a conversation, uh, and and I, I tend to do this as well. But I don't like it because I want to be as engaged and present and you know immediate as I can when I do choose to spend time with other people if that makes sense yeah and it well and also it sounds like if i'm hearing this correctly jacob say if i'm not that you're you're carving out the weekend the span of two days to be present for the writing so that's another way of being present i don't know as people say sort of you're sitting yourself down and you're showing up you're creating this space for your work yeah I, and I think I, I'm that even though I, I do, there's a part of me that really resents having having to have this really dull corporate day job to just pay the bills and occupy so much time Monday to Friday kind of thing. Like there is that, oh God, you know, that, that part of me that just wants all the time in the world to write and commit to art, et cetera. Uh, but the fact that I have, that much time for things to kind of boil over and get to that that point of bursting on on Saturday and Sunday I just you know break out the gates galloping because really? I'm so excited Saturday morning I wake up bright and early regardless of how you know what I did Friday night um I just I am up at six and just you know a little groggy sometimes but just ecstatic to be writing and back in it and um and so that's been really valuable in the sense of I don't I've you know for some wood I haven't had a writer's block yet you know I, I, because I know it's real and I, it sounds horrific yeah because let's not talk about it <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry geez. it's like migraines right like don't yeah. talk about it don't yeah don't yeah. <laughs> but no, sorry, no, go ahead. What were you oh, gonna say, Jacob? Yeah. No, and, and I'm great, I'm really grateful for that uh, kind of um at least for this time in my life. I, you know, I really do hope one day I could land a you know a, a steady gig in, in academia or something and be around creative types. I really do miss being around other writers because I feel so isolated at home I, I live in new york and yet i don't i, I have several you know quite a few friends that are in that are in either publishing or writers themselves in new york but i don't see them very often i'm bad at reaching out that's my fault i'm, tr I'm trying to work on that but um but to have that as part of the routine you know like oh uh, you know bump into a colleague who's also a novelist and just or do you mind reading this for me? You know, it's a, it's so much. It's it doesn't feel like it's such a huge favor with an e via when it's not via email. You know, it's like I haven't spoken to you in eight months, but would you mind reading these chapters? Like, God, yeah, I just I, I have a hard time asking for favors, help. So um, I feel like being having a sense of community in in a more academic job is something I really really do hope to 
land one of these days. But for the time being, things are, you know, they're not perfect, but I, I'm, a, I'm a lucky son of a gun to have what I have right now. And it sounds like how you approach it too, Jacob, is just wonderful because the structure that you have for that Monday through Friday or so, how it just be, creates this urgency. Yeah, it actually sounds really good for your art. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I understand. I hear what you're saying about academia and, but there's also something about, I mean, there's something that maybe you can have in this way that will keep what you're making more yours and less maybe influenced or I don't know. I mean, I, well, <laughs> you know, as a process, like, I'd love to hear like where, what, what your week looks like and how you block out time oh, for creative stuff, you know, with teaching and yeah. I'm not doing a good job of blocking out time and making time. And I'm trying to change that, but Jacob, I mean, if I could do like, I could do a sound collage of the number of times I've said those words. So it can be a struggle. Like I'm trying to change, I'm trying to carve out the time. And so, so I think, I think it sounds, it sounds good what you, what you have and what you're making right now. And if there's something else that happens next, then it'll be kind of cool to see what happens with that life too. When when you went to Madrid, what took you there? Was it teaching? Were you going to teach English or were you? Yeah, I, I, um, when, when I was an undergrad there, you know, the, everybody was doing these study abroad things. And I thought that was the coolest, you know, I was just like, what, you know, you're, you're going where for how long? And I mean, and just like financially, it wasn't an option. And, um, and so that was my thing when I got out of college, well, I was thinking I, I, my thing when I got, when I graduated undergrad uh, was, this is silly, but I was so excited to have a job with air conditioning, uh, like that, because I worked outside forever, you know, or, you know, and so, and so to have a job with, you know, with, that was indoors would be so cool, and not just like, you know, I worked at Ikea, or, you know, Ikea, tar- I worked at McDonald's. I had all sorts of like random jobs along the way. There was air conditioning there, but I meant like, you know, going into an office kind of thing where you don't like sweat all day, you know. And, and or so that freeze, was, conversely, yeah, or probably freeze. like if there is, yeah. Oh, and the winter jobs are even worse. But um, yeah, so that was a big thing for me. But I graduated, you know, at the peak of the, the recession, you know, the 2010 crash, 2009, whatever it was. I graduated in yeah, was it? Okay. <laughs> anyway, it's been a long time since I thought of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. But it it was hard to find a job at that point. So you know what? I'll just I'll learn um I, I'll learn Spanish, and I really wanted to go to Buenos Aires, but um, but then the paperwork was super difficult, and um and so I'm I'm actually a Swedish citizen. My mother's from Sweden, and so um and so having that EU citizenship is just. I mean, what a, what a blessing. I mean, I'm just so fortunate. And so that was, there was barely anything involved. I had to just find a job. And so I got a job as, you know, a high school assistant through a government program in Spain. And, um, and after that year was up, you know, I, I learned two things that one, I did not like working with children and two, <laughs> and two, um, 
I, I had not learned enough Spanish. I would have been embarrassed to return after a year in Spain and just still speaking like an imbecile. And so I was like, you know, what? I'm going to stick around. And I stayed for another four uh, because I found another really great job. And then I started learning to translate. I started translating on the side and, um, and, you know, studying the grammar of Spanish taught me so much about the grammar of English and really showed me how, despite how much I loved language, how little I knew about the mechanics of it. And so that one was something that, I mean, I'm still need help with sometimes, uh, you know, just, just basic mechanics of language. I mean, um, and so that was really, really useful to both, you know, expand my mind and learn a whole separate language and also to, you know, learn a lot about English along the way. Yeah, it's yeah. true because then you can actually, because I also, I got to live for a short time in Madrid as well. And I thinking about, I feel like you, I got to understand more about English and what it's like to understand that language is also a frame that you have for the world, a perspective, which hadn't really made sense before. But then when you have everything is got a, like a gender is gendered in Spain, yeah. you know, in Spanish. And, and I wonder what's happening now. I often think, what will this language, if what changes will happen with things that are happening now with English too? It's just interesting to think about how the way we how we articulate our ideas, which I'm not doing a very good job at right now, is like it it, it actually shapes the idea themselves, which oh. is so strange. It's yeah. And and that that's that's what one of the things about learning language, like like you're saying, is that you know, when you it, it really forces your mind to work when you're when you're struggling to express a, a, a concept that you know that would just be so effortless mindless even in in your native language and but you're really fighting to say it you know it, it takes it it's a real learning curve once you get to that point of like i'm just gonna go for it that 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 took me almost two years to get to that point but then when you're just <laughs> trying to drive past that and it's like I have a good vocabulary. I just don't know that word. So you find these really serpentine manners of, of throwing things together and push, you know, and, and shoving it out. And you really, you know, sometimes you'll even impress the person you're speaking to, you know, it's like, wow, that was, that was an interesting way of putting it. And it's like, oh God, I'm so glad I managed to get that out and keep, you know, not stall every single conversation you're having too, because it's just, it's taxing for everybody else. So you want to be able to participate. And so that, but really it's, I, I can really see the, the you know, like it, it, my mind just visualizes a tunnel, you know, there's like crooked tunnel when I, when I was trying to find those words and, you know, piece ideas together with, with the, the vocabulary that I did, you know, have somewhere in those, depths. It's really fascinating uh, to, to think about that process. And what did you translate, Jacob? <laughs> really boring technical stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I had a lot of students that were engineers because that's where I went. I was working at, uh, at a private academy that uh, their largest client was uh, Técnicas Reunidas, which is a huge Spanish engineering firm. And they were trying to help their you know, uh, employees, you know, brush up on English before they traveled. And so, um, and so they'd have reports and projects that they need translated and didn't want to just run it through Google translator. And so they, you know, I'd pick that up on the side and, um, 
And it was really helpful to me, uh, learned a lot of random scientific vocabulary that I don't even know in English anymore at this point, but you know. So. Only in Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And do you think, would you, would you ever want to do translations for maybe something like fiction in Spanish to English or does, does that interest you too? It's, I, 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 uh, I did, uh, I took two um, translate literary translation courses at Columbia, and I loved it. I worked with both uh, Susan Bernofsky, who works in German, and then Natasha Wimmer, who uh, she does she translated the recent uh, uh, well Bolaño, Roberto Bolaño's works, and wow. um, and um, I mean brilliant trans. Oh, and she just did Nona Fernandez's uh, the. Twilight Zone and um, Space Invaders, uh, brilliant books. I mean, but um, I haven't read them in Spanish, but the, the translations are phenomenal. Anyway, that was just a plug because I'm just such a huge fan of uh, the Twilight Zone in particular by her name's Nona Fernandez, uh, Chilean writer. But I'm anyway, this down. <laughs> yeah, I, I, anybody who's listening, I, I just can't recommend that book enough. Um, but um, to to study it was again it, it was so eye-opening uh in in terms of you know spanish is one of those languages that's that feels when you're using it almost rudimentary really not rudimentary but like it's 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 very distilled right when when you like there's so many there's so many different ways of saying we like think of all the verbs we have to say I went I headed to I left for all of these kinds of or like very just variations and phrasal verbs that we use in English for example there's just all these nuances that are conveyed in English that in in Spanish you have the verb ir you know and um and and so it's just it's it's very compact sometimes you know especially in conversational Spanish or in contemporary literature where you know the the same you see the same kinds of trends these like really like terse kinds of san uh, sandwiches <laughs> sentences <laughs> you just ate too i'm not that hungry <laughs> i wish i had a sandwich for you <laughs> but yeah and and so like to think of so to really think artfully about sen sentences that you could just as easily run through google translate and get a literal version of in your own language but then actually especially like with poetry right you, the, just thinking about the nuanced mm. variations that that you could have for you know three little lines is that attention to detail is something that i really needed as well as a writer for my own work to to just like think very very critically about diction is one of those things that i got called out for all the time because i'm a but you know, when I'm drafting, I get swept up by the sound of language. Sometimes I'll just use words because they sound pretty. It's like, oh yeah, that's definitely not what I meant, but it just sounded good in that instance. And so, and so that that like I was saying, that degree of scrutiny to things like word choice and and especially diction above all, um, but all other components of the language as well is something that really lent itself well to to my own fiction and. If I had more time, I would love to. I got halfway through a novel, translating a novel. I got the guy's permission to do it. Um, but in the end, I just actually started writing Abundance. And it's like, I'm sorry, dude. I, I'm, 
I got to do this. And I mean, it's kind of amazing how you you mentioned earlier that it was something that just was like happened for you in six months. It was like this 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 whoosh of of the novel. Mm-hmm. Would you mind reading three minutes, Jacob, from Abundance? Oh, I should have oh. mentioned it earlier. Do you have a a copy? Yeah, I do have a copy. Why not? I can do that. But Fortunately, it, I had the book just propping up the computer a little, oh, okay. so that was convenient. You're at hand. I get so bashful and flattered be, that people want to hear it. You know, it's just like really old. And then, like this, I, I would love to. Like it's just so. I it just still blows my mind that people are like, like dude, this good. Like, what? Yeah. Read it? You better revel in it. That's exciting. And it takes so much time and like your, your headspace and. Yeah. And, and I really hope I don't, you know, get jaded about praise or not praise, but just like having books out in the world, because that was such an important goal to me that really just was a fire under my butt. Wait, Wait, was it, was it hard to be connected to Grey Wolf? Jacob, for you, like when, when you were finding, did you find an agent first or did you find the, or did you pitch Grey Wolf because of the connection with Minneapolis? And- I found an agent first. And I think that one, my agent is incredible. I mean, fantastic reader. That That's, uh, that's what drew me to, to him when, it, you know, it came down to two who were kind of really interested in abundance and the the way he approached it, what he saw in it, not just not just saying nice things, but how he approached it critically, and and you know was very honest in his feedback, but you know was really analytic about why certain changes would work, not only in a certain part of the book, but like the repercussions it would have later. I was like, oh my gosh, yes, like I yeah. want to work with you. I just want to sit down and you know, ha- hear all your ideas. Uh, so that that was phenomenal and phenomenal in the sense of like, I have a, a partner in this book for the first time, but I also have, you know, somebody who's going to do the things that I can't, you know. Advocate I, for it. And yes. No, I just, wait, I am not cut out for that. Like the whole elevator pitch thing. And I, I cannot. I hear you. I cannot. Um, there is one passage. I can't find it. This book is so dense. <laughs> <laughs> There's just one passage that I thought where, you know, and, and also, you know, my head is in the new book. And so there's, it, it, oh. this does feel so remote now, d- despite the fact that, you know, it, it's happening. It's happening for the first time for people who are picking it up now, which is tremendously so humbling but but at the same time this this does feel really far far away from removed from what i'm working on now there are some thematic overlaps but also just you know there was a time when at least with the manuscript where i didn't even have to think twice just flipping to find a specific sentence that had been bothering me for a while and now i'm like now (laughs) i can barely bring myself to but that's kind of a good thing, isn't it? Because now it even is more so it's an, it's a artifact of its own. It's in the world. It's its own thing. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's one of the things that I'm so damn relieved about is my was the degree of precious like preciousness that I have about the book once it was in the world and how I would respond to criticism or, you know the reviews because it, the like it's gotten good response with like the whole award and stuff but the um but the, the you know the New York Times one the New Yorker one they're like they weren't ecstatic about it they, they were they, they they took some punches at the pros itself and um and i got and i get it it is like super maximalist i mean that they thought that was implied in the t- in the title you know that it's like <laughs> yo it's 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 not going to be the sparse like stylistically the, these sentences are not going to be sparse <laughs> like it's it's going to be a bit overwhelming and you know if you don't dig it that's cool but I, you know, I, you never know, I'm a total novice at the, and so I, I was so relieved when I got the first review and it was not, not, it was, it wasn't hurtful, but, or it wasn't, you know, it didn't rip the book apart, but it also wasn't thrilled about it. And, and it didn't get under my skin at all because it, it occurred to me that nothing's going to take this book off the shelves. Like they can't take it away from me. And that's all I that, that's all I've been fighting for. Like this is it, you know. You can say what you want. It's it's not me either. It's this it's a it's a thing that I, I worked on and I'm done with. Like I'm on to the next thing. So, um, and and uh, you know I'm a sensitive guy. <laughs> like and so I was so relieved that I wasn't just you know curled up and crying on the floor either because that was just as likely of an outcome. But uh, but yeah, and I think like I said a relief yeah yeah (laughs) because I know myself (laughs) well thanks for saying that Jacob because it is so something because it's it's you but it's not you and in a way maybe with each year it's like it's a time of Mm -hmm. you but it's not it's I don't I mean it's not you now even <laughs> I mean it is I, I don't mean to say that because yeah. then that sounds weird because you're obviously the the writer <laughs> what are you okay so I remember what you said earlier um so don't if you don't want to say obviously I I totally get it um it's but with the what you're working on now you, you said there's some themes that are um is it is it a novel also or is it a are you doing some maybe linked stories or because you're in a different world in your mind right now yeah it's um it's it it started as a satire and um and i, I need uh, and it, it it still has satirical elements it is a bit over the top in some regards but um I, 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 let me start by saying that it's it's a three-piece it's a, it's a it's a triptych kind of structure novel where it's you know you're with one character for for about 150 pages and it passes off and it passes off again for a third and they're wildly different and I was really um, the, I think the the core question that drives at least for me in terms of writing it was was studying an expert really to explore different means of affecting progress in the world and you know the like all these social justice ideas were you know I mean if you have if if people have read abundance they know that I'm I'm pretty fixated on injustice and inequality it's just it's what and that that's my sociology background yep um and so and so that would so I got to dwell in 
you know, the firsthand experience of what it means for, for the individual to just be crushed by, by poverty. And, and then I wanted to, with the next book, I wanted to explore how do people go about changing it? And, um, and so, you know, there's one character and, and, and I'm, I'm cynical about the, you know, the ways people, uh, historically how people have gone about it affecting progress and making changes because especially post Obama, I think we, I think people, you know, uh, on the left, we were really hopeful and naive about falling into that uh, American exceptionalism narrative, right? For so long, we got swept up in it by having Obama for eight years. And, you know, and, and I'm, I think I'm guilty of that as well, even though I was living abroad for the majority of his presidency, but I could see from afar interacting with people from other parts of the world that, oh yeah, I remember traveling when Bush was president. This is yeah. pretty sweet. Totally different. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not like considering putting a Canadian flag on my backpack, right? <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and that was all thrown away in a matter of a year, four years, and we're still picking up the pieces. And, and yeah, it, I, I'm left in a rather cynical spot, and I was cynical to begin with. Uh, so I, I really wanted to delve into really different ways of people kind of going for it. Uh, and so one is, I mean, it starts with a radical leftist who's, you know, plotting some pretty nasty things about against people he thinks are in power. You know, but he's all, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm trying to undercut that with kind of a lovable buffoon archetype, if if you will. I mean, I shouldn't be calling it an archetype if I'm trying to pitch this book, but just to like give this guy some humanity as well, because, but so there's that guy who just thinks like this is the only way is you know it's revolution or nothing kind of charge for mm -hmm. uh for progress. Then there is you know not necessarily the moderate, but somebody who's working in government and, you know, open to compromise, trying to negotiate, always having to make concessions. But Civil service. She, yes, okay. exactly. But at least she's engaged and, you know, and like operating within the existing bureaucratic annals, right? And then the last character is the billionaire philanthropist who is actually able to affect you know, some, you know, what superficially appears as progress. And yet this is, you know, sure you're, you're improving the lives of, you know, a, a minute group of people for, for, for the sake of photo ops, right? But what, but the, the amount of power that you're able to exert and also kind of, you know, establish a smoke screen around is hugely problematic. And this notion of billionaires saving us or, you know, like heroes of capitalism, I think is absolutely yeah. appalling. And I want to just, you know, rip it down. And so that, and so like- <laughs> The silent scream. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's what this next book is. And, you know, it's, it's all over the place. And so right now I've been working on it for like three years and, if not more at this point. And right now it's just rounding things out, toning things down. And I was this close to, you know, sending it off to my agent. And then January 6th happened. And so I had to take, reconsider political violence in America to a whole nother degree with a whole nother level of sensitivity that I was not. And um, it, was, it was wildly irreverent in, in both tone and, and 
and uh, certain scenes. And so I have really had to reel it back. But now that's also given me this kind of in, uh, the uh, with with what where the book is kind of operating now, it's not at the front of the plot, but at the periphery of this novel, the world that this novel occupies is um, is the, the is the knowledge that the it was January six was a success, and so and so I didn't want to go into like full dystopia, like oh my god, not only another four years, but another decade of you know. It becomes a monarchy kind of situation, just handing off to Vanka or, and whatever. Or just dictator, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, like that's happening on the periphery. But that's like also the inciting act uh, event that like, it's like, oh my god, it, this is what we need. Like violence was the answer for this first character, the radical type, even though he's opposed to who did it. You know, doesn't agree with them politically. It's like, see if these you know reactionary fascists on the right can pull it off. And we on we're the ones on the on the left. We got to do you know meet fire with fire kind of notion. And not that I agree with that personally. I want to make that clear. But uh, you know that that's kind of the inciting incident there. Jeez, yeah. And that's so that's been something that you've been working on for three years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and you're fully in, and I, you're revising it now, like the work of going through and and it's been a lot of revising um but i i met i meant like that final stretch where i'm just smoothing things out and because it's you know three characters three, you know, essentially three novels together you know trying to make sure all the little plot points click together across what's in total almost 600 pages and being very mindful of how each little beat is going to have those reverberations into the next characters and you know being very very mindful of maintaining uh, some level degree of plausibility throughout even though it's hyperbolic you know like i i do need to establish some some guardrails for the book for this world that i've created right because it's it's out there i know but i don't want to completely re, you know repel readers from how absurd some of these premises are yeah. that makes sense yeah, yeah. And that's a lot. I've been like way over my head. It's a lot. Well, I, mean, I was going to say it's a lot to manage somehow when you're, yeah. you said how important that your agent was for abundance. And so, and is this still in a, almost like a partner in the book? Like you said, at a certain point, like in bringing the book to the world, certainly, and helping you think about things in it it's are you working with the same person then for for this next novel too oh yeah absolutely and he gave me some great I, I sent it to him way too prematurely like with you know about like five months into the pandemic of 2020 you know it's like I was getting close and I was like I just want you to take a look at this I think I'm there and he you know chopped that down he's like no 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 and gave me great notes but and I was also pretty embarrassed of just like oh man yeah I you're right. I needed to look this over once or twice before wasting your time again. But he, he was very, very, you know, it, it wasn't, he wasn't dismissive. Uh, but 
just in the back of my mind, I was like, next time I'm going to make sure I've gone through at least five rounds of revision before ever bothering you with something so undeveloped again. But well, it's a learning process. And especially if you're working with a particular person, it would be so, I mean, who knows what will happen, but it could be something that's a relationship that keeps growing too. And that could be almost seems old fashioned in a way, like yeah. working with an, an editor, a person who you work closely with. Oh, absolutely. And so, I mean, I mean, I, I, and that, I think that's the, yeah, we were talking earlier about, you know, keeping things when, when you're in the, like the incubation phase of, of a new work, right? You really got to be patient with it because at the, t- at the same time you get impatient and, and you really want to just get it off your hands, get onto the next thing, because there's always the next thing, right? But uh, the, the, that was a great learning experience. And I've, I've, I should have learned earlier from other ones, but, <laughs> but showing things a little bit too early. But um, I think it's, it, it's really, really valuable to learn how to be as critical as possible and ruthless as possible with your own stuff and, and, and then get somebody's feedback because it's, it's that much easier both to defend, but also to see where they're identifying the holes that you might've over overlooked because there's with early drafts, there's just, it's, it's very porous. If you want to think of a plot, like a loaf of bread or something, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but there's just so many places where things can fall, just collapse. Right. And so you, you want to get it as sturdy uh, uh, and fully fleshed as possible. And then, you know, just be kind of backtracking to just patch things up as opposed to relaying the entire scaffolding of the thing. And it seems though you're, you as a writer are also really good about protecting it for the time you need so that it can become itself before it goes into that, that maybe you as the writer, that critical part of the process where you're looking at it somehow with like a different you know, eyes or a different perspective, because I think you wouldn't want to introduce that part too soon in the making of it. No, um, that's to- absolutely. And I mean, similar with like, abundance, how I said that that first draft came out in six months. I mean, I, I, I'm, when I have an idea for a story, I, I can just run with it, but that's also by not using a computer. I think like the delete button is my enemy. You know, I just, go for it and just hack out whatever long, ugly, messy statements and, or sentences and scenes and just get it all on there and double space it so I can go through with a pen and, you know, re, you know, patch things together, scissor it up, you know, but like but just so it's on paper and I see how like things played out naturally that first time. And of course you can always go back. It's like, yeah, that's ridiculous. That, that, that character would never have said that or done that, but that's what occurred to me. And so I've noticed that kind of, that, tension point in the plot where these characters have moved where it's like okay it feels natural that some sort of disruption is need to happen here and like that's what I, where my intuition was but it wasn't the right direction to turn it wasn't the right comeback for a character to say etc but you know you, you you find that in the, those first drafts those like those, those opportunities 
Yeah, yeah. And do you so when you're when you're writing for the first draft, do you use something like do you use a, a typewriter or do because it doesn't sound like you use longhand, but do you use any the neo or something where you just have to keep moving forward or I know it's so dorky. I feel like the, that's such a like hipster trope of you know the millennials, but and I swear to God, I've never brought it to a cafe or anything. But I I got I got a typewriter when I was like 14 from a thrift store and it was the best thing because you know you just you just go for it and um and nobody sees those drafts they're not digital so you can't don't need to worry about like emailing them or something they're just there you can burn them because that's really what you need to do with those first drafts they don't never should never see the light of day um and 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 yeah and then and i mean i'm i always i do my notes in longhand i keep a journal just strictly for self critiques that i you know um i like look at what I wrote and critique myself as I would another person's. Uh, that, that, that's how I wind down at the end of a writing session is like, think about what I wrote and then think about, good job, Jacob, you did this. But also like think like that was a stupid idea. You can't run with that. That was done. Or like you need to do this next time, next Saturday morning. And so that's that's what kind of you know motivates me come Saturday is like, I, I, I know what I messed up last weekend. So let's go fix it and see you what happens of, next. So you do take stock as you're drafting. You do I, take stock along the way. Afterwards, like, uh, okay. you know, in the evenings, in the evenings, okay. you yeah. know, between, between sessions. But like when it's, when it's I, I call them drafting sessions, you know, because, I, you know, just loud, my, you know, my music, no internet and you know. So looking up words in the diction, you know, yeah, dictionaries or thesaurus or whatever. No, maybe uh, I also use lists uh, to, you know, you know, I'll, I'll usually end my sessions when I'm taking notes about like things that I messed up or need to fix, or I'll also make a list of like, if I'm working on a longer piece, that's, that's more plot driven. I'll say, I'll kind of think, lay out a list of they should do this, they, you know, that he does that, she does that, da, 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 and just like have like a general idea if it's, you know, in a linear fashion of like what beats I need to hit for the next session. And even if I don't hit them, at, at least it's bringing me to that next yeah. part. And um, at least in the dra for the drafting phase, it's, it's really useful. So you're not just, I don't have to like lean back and twiddle my thumbs. Like what am I actually working towards, you know? Yeah. And you can even, like you said, sometimes you're even groggy, like coming out of that sort of that, that semi-consciousness, the dreamscape, yeah. but you've got a list. So you have a way just to go into it and you can use that that mind. It, yeah, I think that's wonderful, Jacob. It, it sounds like kind of what I think Hemingway used to say something like, or what someone said he said, whatever, like where you stop a sentence when you're writing at a certain, like midway, just so you always have something to pick up on. But yours oh, sounds more cool. forward thinking and, mm -hmm. and better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say, I know Hemingway's not hip right now, but I'm never going to say I'm writing better than him. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be so mad yeah, I know, he'd beat me up too he like, totally, I, yeah, I could not take him challenge you to a, a fisticuffs yeah. hey hey Jacob would you would you mind reading something from abundance or yeah. would you rather not today does it feel like it's not the right time because either either way is good it's okay do it I, I I found one passage that I, I at least it touches on 
home and this is just the start of chapter two dollars and 41 cents there is free coffee at the contractor's entrance of home depot at the far end of the parking lot a dozen day laborers sit on lunch pails picking at caulk stains and craning their necks after passing trucks a few stand when henry rolls by and those who recognize him turn away the store is empty too early for the stay-at-home mom gardeners or the after-work DIYer crowd. Henry squirts weak coffee into a styrofoam cup. Recently, he's been taking it with sugar for the extra kick in calories, so now bites, and so now bites the corners off three packets, pours, stirs, a muddy vortex. He should not have yelled at the boy, should never have opened his mouth in the first place. The first sip scalds his tongue. When he blows, the burnt scales rustle like the last of autumn's leaves, and he needs to focus. He will make it up to Junior tonight, but no point in beating himself up now when there's nothing he can do, not when there's so much else on the line. Sipping quick so he can get a refill on the way out, he wanders the wide aisles of building materials, looking for an empty slot, an out-of-stock item to name in case he gets stopped by an employee. As he passes the lumber and rounds into a lane full of bagged cement, the logic behind the division of inventory dawns on him. The contractor's half of the store holds all the fundamental elements for building a home, all of which later get concealed by the ornaments for sale on the other side, all the paints, light fixtures, moldings, carpets. While the construction of a home adheres to a sequence, the structural first, foundation and framing, next the functional pump, plumbing and electric, and last the aesthetic, decor and color schemes, it's by no means a ranking of importance. A shelter might only require the first two, but all three are essential to create a true home. If given the materials and a patch of land, he knows he could build one for his family. Not that he's entitled to that, but still, doesn't seem too much to ask for either. Before his imagination pours the foundation's concrete, he takes note of an empty slot here in the irrigation and drainage aisle. Hunger has him all cavernous again, the pangs reverter reverberating through him like his footsteps in this warehouse. The caffeine, sugar spur, a riot of worries, junior, money, the dogmonger, iron, an interview in his brain, but deliver no strength to his limbs. Just a hot sputter in his gut, he flicks the stir stick to coax the sludge of dregs and sugars into his mouth. The grains scrape over his tongue and down his throat as if he swallowed a shot of sand. Thanks so much, Jacob. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for it. Indulging me. Your That's friend Jake, who exactly? Yeah, uh, I definitely had him in mind because he's somebody who you know, that, that was that. That's exactly the person I was thinking of when I was talking about how our paths have had diverged, and and he's in a good place now, but I mean, still, still struggling in in lots of ways. But he's somebody I think of. I and he read this. His, he's he's in the acknowledgments of the book, and um and you know he gave me a lot of good feedback, and you know helped stuff that we kind of got had been through back you know however many years ago that is um lifetime ago for me <laughs> still young but it feels like a lifetime ago he very much informed a lot of the book and the stuff we lived together so yeah big influence on my work and he's also a brilliant creative person as well yeah and i think that you can feel the tenderness for this character mm -hmm. um that is there yeah, and I think that, that 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 tenderness is, you know, a lot of it is, is just, for me, what I think is so tender about Henry is just how ostensibly humble, if not meager, his wishes are, you know, and, and how he undercuts them. I mean, there, there was, I was surprised by a line in that passage I read of just where he's saying, not that I deserve a home, right? right? It's like, dude, lay of off yourself. Of yeah. Course you. yeah. But, that's, but that's not something we're necessarily taught, you know, like there's conflicting 
narratives, right? That that we grow up with in the states. You know, there's a there's there's on one hand there's a huge sense of entitlement where we can, you know, every anything we wish for is ours, you know, and we can talk down to any say store clerk if we don't get our way kind of attitude and, and with the customers always right mentality any inconvenience is an assault on your your <laughs> dignities and american rights uh, rights as an american but then you know somebody at the other end anybody you know experiencing homelessness or even just financially unstable you know we have no mercy for them and so that's that, that that's where that was something i wasn't necessarily trying to reconcile in abundance but just cope with and confront you know just really lay those two narratives over each other and see how they would interact thanks so much for talking to me today thank you so much thank you t this was such an enlightening conversation thank you for listening to me blather on and on i was just that was so much fun i hope i just didn't talk your ear off because the, uh, that was too much fun for me i haven't had i haven't had a chance to talk about this in a while WCBNFM and other archives. Original air date November 26, 2008 at 7 p.m. Sweet, here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. My name is Amir Bektash and today I'm joined by Vihan. Vihan, how you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm good. First time on the air. I'm excited. Technical difficulties, but I think we are better now. Uh, Vihan, let's just start out with Michigan football. They uh, will head over to Iowa this weekend and and play the Iowa Hawkeyes. Any initial thoughts on Michigan's first road trip? Well, I got to say, I'm more of a pro football guy. I'll just be open about that. I'm just getting into college football since I got here. Like, I'm a big draft nerd. I just don't follow college football that often. But I'm aware that Iowa can, tends to be a good team. At least they're on a tight end university. You know, you got George Kittle. You got a lot of great guys who went there. So you can expect Iowa with their rabid their rabid legions of fans to give us a good time i still think it'll be a good time you know the team is clicking looking good we're capable of both scoring points and containing the, the opposing team on defense so i'm excited to see how it'll go i think it'll be a competitive contest no matter what i still think we'll take the win although like i said i'm a college football nudes noob so don't take my don't take my word with a grain of salt oh no worries 